Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. And this time, this time I mean it because we have one of my favorite guests, Frank Four of the Atlantic Monthly and author of a new very important book, in my estimation, The Last Politician, a chronicle of the first two years of the Biden presidency. Throughout the uh, last politician, you, you get sort of a blow-by-blow picture of how Biden approaches the office that he sought uh, three times. And this is not uh, the Sleepy Joe caricature that Fox News and the others try to create. It's quite the opposite. This is a guy with strengths and weaknesses. But what emerges in this book is a fully engaged president who brings it every day and with his understanding and mastery of how the government works and got so much done. Uh, inheriting a uh, government that had no plan, no plan for getting the COVID vaccine into people's arms. Uh, the Biden team does that. Uh, so that within six months, you get the shot at the at your pharmacist. Uh, that was a victory for technocracy, uh, something that's a theme in The Last Politician and something that you certainly wouldn't associate with the Trump administration. Remember that, that Trump, in his first two years, had the House and the Senate and couldn't get an infrastructure bill done. Every week was infrastructure week. And it just never happened. Biden got the largest infrastructure package through since Eisenhower built the interstate highway system. Uh, chips are a huge investment in semiconductor uh, manufacturing, uh, focused on our national security. We're relying on China for our semiconductors and on manufacturing and uh, working class and middle class jobs and investment in science. And the Inflation Reduction Act, a nearly $400 billion investment in addressing climate change, which is, uh, you know, kind of important. And uh, I'm out here in Los Angeles right now. I was out here for my granddaughter's uh, seventh birthday. And uh, I don't know what we're leaving them. So that is important. Now, despite these achievements, Joe Biden is now in a dead heat with a guy uh, who he beat in 2020 and has been indicted now uh, four times, as you know, on 91 charges. Uh, there's reasons for that. Inflation, 
uh, Biden's age, a legitimate question. And we discuss some of the bullshit that people see in professional politicians and in someone who is uh, the last politician. This election could not be more important. Both Trump and Biden will go into this race somewhat diminished. And that's why this book is so important, because the caricature of Joe Biden that Fox and the others have created could not, not, not be further from the truth. That's why I want you to listen to this one with Frank Four, uh, because it is an important one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Well, uh, the last politician was uh, in the New York Times today uh, on a story. It Was it today? It was on Bidenomics. A, uh, yeah, that's right. It was in uh, David Leonhardt's newsletter that uh, gets published every morning. And it, he referenced my book and how it tells a story about the transformation of democratic policy on trade, on unions, etc. The point is, is that Bidenomics, which is this super banal word when it's plastered against the backdrop of Biden's stump speeches is actually something of ideological paradigmatic significance. <laughs> you know, did you think that we would, would be a minute and 13 in and we'd get to paradigmatic? Yeah. Well, I was counting on that. One of the things about your uh, book, and let's talk about Bidenomics. And they mentioned um, the National Security Advisor in this, uh, in Leonard's thing today, uh, who uh, wouldn't think of as a convert to liberalism or to leftyism on, on economics. But that, that is the transition that Biden has made. And I don't know if the American people see it. No, they probably, they probably don't. I mean, it's one of the most frustrating things about this administration is that it's done so many things well that the public 
just is basically indifferent to. Well, like like the COVID response was masterful and people don't want to talk about COVID <laughs> basically, right? Well, I, I was, I was, when I, you know, when I wrote that, I was thinking about uh, that clip that you did when you were Senator talking about the role of government and you went through and you kind of brilliantly explained all these ways in which your wife's family, Franny's family has benefited from government over time. And you had this very sweeping narrative. And I thought about the vaccine and the vaccine is really one of the most incredible things government has ever done. I'm starting with Operation Warp Speed, but when the Biden people came in, within six months, they came up with a plan and a system that made it so that you could walk into your neighborhood CVS and you could get a shot that would save your life. And it was executed so seamlessly so well that the public never really appreciated it. And I guess in a way, writing this book, which for me, it was kind of a tonic after Trump, where I, w- I wasn't writing about a guy advising the country to ingest bleach, you know, who flushed documents down the toilet. I was writing a book about governing and the actual stuff of governing. And one of my goals was to try to make the government and the act of governing as tense, as sexy, as interesting as I think it deserves to be. Oh, it's sexy, man. All right. Now you're mocking. Yeah. I, I tried to chart it up. But still, <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk about technocracy in this as as if, uh, and I've heard some people use that as a bad word, but it's a good word because, well, for example, on, on COVID, you're right. Uh, you know, orig- the Operation Warp Speed was a Trump administration policy and to develop the vaccine as fast as possible. Of course you would, right? Of course you would. <laughs> but they weren't distributing. They, they had no plan to get shots in arms. Um, I track the story of a woman called Natalie Quillian, who is one of these people who never makes headlines. She was the deputy campaign manager. And then after the campaign, which was this grinding thing, they said, oh, by the way, you're going to be the deputy in the COVID response. And so Biden wins in the Electoral College. AP uh, gives them the victory. The transition, the formal act of the new administration coming in and learning about the old one, it, it begins because there's a law that says it needed to begin. And she has, she goes around the bureaucracy basically asking, like, where is the plan to put these shots in arms? And they go, they ask at Health and Human Services, at the Department of Defense, and they keep asking, asking. And at a certain point, she comes to the conclusion, well, they just never had a plan for getting the shots in arms. They never had the plan for ramping up the manufacturing of the vaccine so that it would happen quickly enough. Weren't they having some dispute with Pfizer or Trump? Didn't yeah, like yeah, 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 exactly. Something? Pfizer was one of the few companies that didn't take Operation Warp Speed money. And so Alex Azar, Trump's HHS secretary, and Trump himself kind of took it out on Pfizer that they weren't they weren't playing ball. And then Pfizer announced the vaccine test results right after the election. And Trump was convinced that Pfizer was conspiring to screw him with the election, that if he had Pfizer had announced those results earlier, Trump would have won. And so they they were just reluctant to give Pfizer everything that it needed in order to quickly ramp up production. So are you saying that Trump tends toward being paranoid in some way? I, you know, I would never accuse him of being petulant, vindictive, paranoid. No, those would be totally out of character. Okay, good. Because we don't do that here. 
that no, we keep it at a high level. I've been on the show podcast. enough to know that it's a very rare Yes, five. you have. You've been on five, six times, something like that. Since so we're talking about Bidenomics and the name of the book is the last, uh, or the title is The Last Politician, uh, you can't get into any of this without talking about politics. And he's running in his last election. He got came to the Senate. He was elected at 29, comes in at 30 uh, after the tragic death of his wife and daughter. Now he's older and uh, running his last election. It seems to me that he's not getting credit for much of anything. We, we haven't gone through these, but you have the Recovery Act. Yes. Okay. You have the infrastructure bill. This is the largest infrastructure or law. Uh, this is the largest infrastructure bill up uh, since uh, Eisenhower did the interstate highway system. You have CHIPS, which is the semiconductor bill, which is very much about building up uh, the kinds of jobs for middle-class people. I mean, there, there's a real focus in Bidenomics on building up working-class and middle-class folks. Yep. And some of the biggest investments in science that we've made for basic science, research, training of engineers, et cetera, for decades. Which um, is important as far as I've, I've read. Yeah, one could argue. And then, of course, the biggest investment in climate, the Inflation Reduction Act, and also the first time that we're putting pharmaceuticals, we're, we're allowing the government to negotiate on pharmaceuticals, which every other country does. We pay about, I don't know, three times as much for pharmaceuticals as they do in Europe. Right. It's because they their governments all negotiate and ours hasn't. Yep. So all of this is huge. And, of course, that means insulin only for people on Medicare is, what, 35 bucks or a month? or Something like that. Something like that. But I don't think the American people are – they're mad about inflation. But, you know, there's, a, there's a ways to go to the election. I, where, do you know where Reagan was at this point? I think roughly where Biden is now. I, um, I think that that's the case. A little – I think he was a little underwater. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, he had the – you know, uh, beat Walter Mondale. And Mondale took Minnesota. Let us never forget. Yeah, and D.C., I think. So we, we, there's a long way to go. And also, uh, Trump has been, did you know, he's been indicted four times and what is it, 91 uh, charges. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've got these guys going against each other probably again, and, and they're probably diminished in certain ways each, I think unfairly for Biden because of exactly what we're talking about, not getting credit for this stuff. And we're going to see this again, right? Yeah. I, there's a surprising amount of, um, maybe not surprising, they're, they're, given the poll numbers, but there's a lot of, I think, what the Obama campaign manager, David Plouffe, referred to as bedwetting that's happening among Democratic operatives and, and faithful, that they look at Biden's poll numbers and they look at his list of accomplishments, and it's hard to square it. And everybody comes back to this age issue, which is, I suppose, unavoidable and, and in some ways embedded in the title of my book, The Last Politician, something evocative about age in that. And there's a lot of panic right now that this election could plausibly slip away because voters have such a settled opinion about 
Joe Biden. And I think age is, is a huge part of it. But I also think that what you just described with inflation is a really big part of it because the pain that people feel with inflation is a very particular type of pain. Yeah, it's that a real it, pain. It, it, hits, it hits every day. Um, it's something that you never forget. Every time you you buy a loaf of bread or pump up at the gas, you're reminded of that. And it, even though there's maybe nothing that Biden could do about it once the supply chain and Russia and, and all the COVID spending unleashed. Well, you know, the Recovery Act, you know, that was way too big, way too big. Well, it's interesting if you go back and you reconstruct <laughs> what Biden's thinking was at the Recovery Act. He was thinking mm-hmm. about what that did. Let, remind people what the Recovery Act did. It kept people in their homes. Right. Well, it's the American First Rescue Plan. The American well, the Recovery uh, Act, I think, yeah. was the Obama. Um, oh, what am I stimulus. saying? Yes. No, I mean, I, I get confused between the two all the time. But what the rescue plan did was it provided all of the funding for the vaccine rollout for sequencing the different strains of the virus. It uh, gave people um, a check that they were able to spend directly. It was a promise that Biden had made in uh, in Georgia in the runoff election there, and something that had been endorsed across the spectrum. This is with a huge, huge unemployment, of course, because of the pandemic. Exactly, exactly, and it it supplied money to state and local governments so that they wouldn't have to lay people off during their own fiscal crises and. Biden was haunted by what happened in 2008. He saw the number of people who got knocked out of the labor market because of the financial crisis. And uh, he saw the scarring effect of that long-term unemployment. And for Biden, this is all very personal. His father took a social tumble at one point, was laid off from a job. And uh, in Biden's worldview- It's going to be okay, Joe. It's going to be okay. Right. Work is associated with dignity. That, that's my impression of Biden doing his dad. No, no, no. Which I, that story I've heard right, a lot. Right. Yeah. Uh, so work is associated with dignity. And his big concern is that there would be a reprise of the 2008 crisis, that it looked like if there was going to be another surge of COVID, which there was when he, he took office, that businesses would lay off in mass again. And those jobs might not ever come back. And so he erred on the side of overreacting. And part of the risk was that there would be some mild inflationary impact from all of that social spending. And it's I, I'm not totally convinced that there was that much inflationary impact from this one piece of, of, of spending. But certainly you look at the cumulative COVID spending across those many bills that were passed before Biden yeah, because, took over. Because yeah, Trump was, had passed one not as large. Right. Right. Or Trump, uh, Congress had passed it and Trump had signed it, a uh, couple. Right. And uh, this was to keep people eating and and uh, and, and the Republicans are trying to uh, actually cut a lot of that stuff right now. That's part of what they're threatening a government shutdown. They want to cut, uh, but they're cutting things like WIC, women and, and children. I remember once uh, Bernie uh, Sanders, when he was a uh, ranking member of the budget committee, he came in during a caucus lunch and he gave his report and it was like, they want to cut food stamps. He says, what kind of religion cuts food stamps? <laughs> and I said, Southern Baptist. Only Harry Reid laughed. <laughs> uh, Only Harry. 
But uh, yeah, they they uh, so we have uh, what's their majority? Uh, how in the House five? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we got to take that back and hold the Senate and win the presidency. But we all know that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, but, but the thing is, is that no matter what, who, what caused it or whatever, when inflation is at nine percent. You just go, holy mackerel, I don't remember that. That's never been at that. And and except, you know, during stagflation in the in the seventies. And people they don't forget that either. I think it's just a visceral reaction to that. And he was president during that. Yeah. And inflation has come down and it's come down more quickly in the United States and in, in a lot of Oh, yeah. If he, and at the time when it was 9%, it was 10% and, and higher in Europe. I mean, inflation is higher in Europe in some part because of the war, right? right. Fuel and stuff there is much is higher. Right. But uh, because they can't get it from, they don't aren't getting it from Russia. But Americans aren't going like, oh, you know what? It's high, the inflation rate is higher in Turkey. <laughs> so let's give some credit to Biden. I mean, right? That's, no, that's not the way. That's not the way it works. Not the way it works. And you know who knows that? The last politician, <laughs> right? Well, he was um, during the midterm elections. He was obsessed with gas prices. It was the thing that he asked for most often. And so every every briefing book that he took home overnight, they would they would stick in the gas prices. Every time he'd arrive at a meeting, he'd ask people, what's the gas price? You know what's funny that Trump does? He goes like, when I was president, you know, it was $2.30 a gallon. Yeah, at the bottom <laughs> <laughs> of the, at, at, at the bottom of economic activity during the pandemic, during a worldwide pandemic, the price of gas went way down. Why? Because there was no, no one was driving. No, no businesses were open and burning oil. <laughs> it was like, and so I love that. But he'll say, he'll say that. Yeah, yeah. He'll, you can guarantee that. And if if you get to talk to the Biden people for the, during the debate, prep for the debate, just have him go after him. Just chew his ass out for that. <laughs> Because that's an easy chew your ass out. Yeah, we're at, <laughs> you know, Joe's not as sarcastic. Or is he? No, he doesn't really do sarcasm. No, he doesn't. He does weird stuff. You, you want me to tell my first, my story about meeting him? Yeah, first please. Uh, you, you say you like the story, but okay. So uh, this is about, I don't know, three weeks before I'm seated. Uh, this is like June of uh, 2009 and i've been in this recount i won the recount in january but in minnesota you have to wait till the supreme court signs off and it they just kept uh to delay me kept doing legal action so i go into the white house and i uh meet uh joe biden for the first time yeah, but i admired joe always and he comes in and he goes you're probably wondering how i got here well let me tell you 40 years in washington Never promise anything you can't deliver. Never. <laughs> and I go, okay, I got it. Never promise something. Never keep make a promise you can't keep. Okay. Got it. So uh, we talk about why. He says, you're going to be seated in a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, whatever it is. And when you come in, we're going to have to give you something. 
the administration's going to have to give you something. What do you want? And I wish, you know, I thought uh, my campaign manager's there, Franny's there, and I kind of wish that my campaign manager said he might ask you this. So I th- the only thing I can think of right away, I just go, well, I guess the extension of the North Star Line, which is a commuter line from, it's supposed to go from Minneapolis to St. Cloud, but it only goes halfway there. And then he, he nods in a way that was beautiful, a beautiful nod, which was, I don't know whether or not he knew what it was. But he had spoken up in St. Cloud and promised that the administration would finish this. But the way he nodded was either he did know what it was or didn't know what it was, but he did it in such a way that I had to accept that he knew what it was. (laughs) And that was a politician. That was great. I was just in awe of that nod. So I go, uh, he goes, how much would that cost? And I said, $130 million. And then he says, well, then that's what, that's what we're going to do. When you come in, we're going to deliver that for you. We're going to say that Al Franken got this for us, for, for Minnesota, for St. Cloud. So I go, Jesus, that's great. And then I'm leaving, and Klain, Ron Klain, uh, who you talk about a lot, in the, uh, who's the vice president's uh, chief of staff at the time, and been Gore's chief of staff, Ron Klain steps out of his office, sees me, hi, Al. I uh, had it go. I went, it went great. He just promised. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, how much does that cost? And I said, $130 million. And Ron thinks it over and goes, no. <laughs> never promise anything you can't deliver. And we never got it. <laughs> right. If I had been the 50th senator, you know, Democratic senator, then I would have gotten it probably, right? Yeah. If you were Joe Manchin. If I was Joe Manchin, <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> or uh, or a cinema, you know, on the infrastructure bill, then I would have gotten anything that, that I would have wanted. Yeah, but no, that was never promise anything you can't deliver. Hearing you tell that story, I've heard you tell the story that before and laughed my head off at it. It's really, it's so spot on. And I think I'd actually heard Biden in the White House the day after you told me that story, say exactly that line, never promise something that you can't deliver. And I I, la- I had to call you immediately afterwards uh, to laugh about that. But I think you're getting at something <laughs> in the title, The Last Politician. There's something about politics and politicians, one of the reasons why they never get respect is that there is this sense that they're inauthentic, that they'll say one thing to you on the stump and then they'll go and they'll do something else when they're behind closed doors. And that nod of the head that you just described, kind of the ultimate politician's gesture, which is one where there's like this this seeming Ascent, but not really. Like it, his and- ascent, though, was yes. <laughs> <laughs> the word, yeah, we'll give you that when you come back. That was his ascent. I'm not, but you're, you're right. I mean, he is, he, he's a politician, and that's, thank God. Thank God, because he won. And th- we need him to win again because the, the stakes are so fucking high. Right. But on the other hand, as you write the book, you also see often he stands by his own what he actually firmly believes in. Even when, even on like on abortion, you know, being this Catholic, Catholic, a real go to mass Catholic, he wasn't, you know, with Elizabeth Warren. He hesitated and in an odd way 
the way he hesitated on going over, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever, however you want to characterize it, mm-hmm. um, it helped. Yeah. Yeah. His instincts on that were, were spot on that he understood that if he made himself the issue at that moment, then his policy would be the issue, not the radicalism of the Supreme Court, not the Republican Party that made the Supreme Court that 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 made Dobbs possible. And his instinct was, let them hoist themselves on their own petard, and I'm not going to do anything to distract the public from that. It wasn't emotionally satisfying in the moment, but in, in the end, it was politically He took correct. a lot of flack for that. He took a lot of flack. A huge, a huge amount. But it, there was also this parallel story that's happening where he was wrestling with his own personal beliefs. I mean, I think part of Joe Biden is stuck in the 80s and 90s as it relates to some of the culture war issues. And sometimes there is wisdom that that comes from that where he knows that there are places that the Democratic Party shouldn't go because it would be politically self-destructive. But on an issue like abortion, I think he was stuck in old frameworks about you know trimesters and, and instead of thinking about the, the utter radicalism of the decision and everything that it opened up. And it took the case of that 10-year-old girl from Ohio who traveled to Indianapolis and ended up getting yep. sued. That was the thing that radicalized him where he was able to say, okay, this is this is bananas. And like whatever issues of conscience I might have, they disappear in the face of this decision because it's so damn extreme. But also remember that he pushed uh, Obama on uh, same-sex marriage. Yeah. And, um, you know, so. Yeah, no, 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 it's true. On those issues of sexual freedom for a guy of his age, he's willing to go pretty f- in pretty progressive direction. Oh, that's another bullshit story, uh, I think. Okay, tell me what you think. Uh, he tells a story about him and his dad in the car. Do you know this story? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> and it's like he's a kid. He's like a kid, right? And uh, he and his dad, so this is like 1955. <laughs> okay. So he tells a story like, Dad and I in a car, and we see two men in another car kissing. And my dad says to me, I, I look at him like, what's it? He goes, it's love, Joe. It's love. Now, come on. Does the dad say that? Oh, you know, in, 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 in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1952, there, there, there were leather bars on every corner. And like, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it checks out. OK, well, that's so every once in a while he does that. But then on the on the other hand, they're, you know, just throughout this him standing on on his own values and being a little stubborn in the right way. Yeah. No, it's it's true. You know what? You know what? The biggest contrast to me, just I mean, the idea that these two guys run against each other again. And if you look at your book, your 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 book, uh, very comprehensive on how each piece of legislation gets done and how all these different technocratic. Oh, I like. There's one story I love, which is him checking on a plane in Europe that's going to deliver. Infant formula. Yeah. You know, I mean, can you, I, I just can't imagine Trump. Trump just feels like he just watched TV and that was kind of it. And then he watched TV and developed his talking points from watching Fox. That was mainly his work as president. 
Yeah. And you see Biden for for all this. Oh, he's so old. My God, the guy's working constantly. Yeah. It's actually something I didn't really know about Biden before embarking on this book. I, you know, I, I didn't I kind of thought of him as um, a fairly superficial politician who would give he knew something. He knew a lot about foreign policy, but I didn't think about him as a wonk per se. Well, you make the point that he got he got caught, you know, that plagiarism thing way back. Uh, Neil Kinnock's uh, thing yeah. about yeah. being a minor or something, which I, I don't understand how he did that. But <laughs> um, but you, you write in the book that since then he is just make sure that he knows what he's talking about on everything. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. This guy is. And and also I'm very impressed with the questions he asked people. That is from this unbelievable years and years and decades of experience as well as instinct. And you see both at work all the time. One of the questions that he asks all the time in meetings is this very practical question about government, which is, all right, you're proposing this benefit, but how are people going to know about the benefit? How are people going to experience that benefit? The really nitty gritty questions about implementation that he tends to ask. And they're often questions that have been ignored by a lot of policymakers. The other types of questions that he likes to ask are about how a certain policy will play in a certain place. So he needs to get detail for narrative. He's a storyteller. You know, as you say, about that story about the 1950s in Scranton with uh, Love is Love, like sometimes not always the most accurate storyteller. But when it comes to sitting down and talking to a senator, he likes to know, all right, <laughs> what is the, the North Star line? <laughs> you know, th- those types of very specific questions. OK, we're going to extend the American Rescue Plan to rescue farmers in this state. So where will that really manifest itself? When, when John Tester comes in to talk to me about this, like, what can I tell him about Montana that will make it persuasive for him to fall in line behind me. And the staffers who don't make it in Biden's universe are the ones who aren't able to think narratively, who don't share that gritty, practical view of politics. It's a, he, he has staff that's been with him for years and years, including, uh, you know, uh, Tony Blinken, McLean has been with him. Uh, these are and and to some degree, I think these are the, the technocrats that some complain about. But you actually need people who know what levers to pull and how to get things done to get things done. Yeah, uh, Biden is a is an Irish politician, Irish American politician who grew up in the '60s and couldn't help but um, stick the Kennedys up on a pedestal. And I think like the Kennedys' family was always the atomic unit of politics for him. And the staff who stuck with him have almost this familial-like relationship with him. Ron Klain started working with Biden when he was 28, way back in the 80s. Same is true for Mike Donilon. Blinken's been with him for decades. And you can go on down the list. And one of the common qualities that they have is they're not pure technocrats. They're people who can tend to bridge the political policy divide. And which is what makes it even more perplexing that Biden 
presidency, which has been successful on policy grounds, has done a not terrific job of bridging the politics policy divide. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to ask you about, and I, I, we talk, we've talked about this, Afghanistan, Ukraine. Yeah. Because uh, Afghanistan was a debacle. They, they got a lot of people out. They did an amazing job once they fucked up and got a tremendous number of people out and did an amazing job after that. But the military intelligence, the intelligence going into this, and I noticed that, that you write about this, that he, you could tell that Biden wanted to leave. Oh, yeah. And he promised he would leave. Well, yeah, and and Trump had put him in the position where Trump had negotiated with the Taliban, not with the Taliban and the Kabul government. Yep, yep. But with the Taliban on a date, and first Biden moved the date to September 11th, which I'll never understand. Nope. That was weird. But then it became August something. They, They got persuaded to change it. Yes. But- you can tell that he wa- he wanted to leave, and and uh, you know we were there twenty years, and I think that he was always against uh, expanding that war, you know, to build up what was the surge, yeah, uh, in ten. But he kind of <sighs> talks to Millie and talks to others as if, no, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> and you see Millie kind of saying what is kind of like I know. We're going to leave, right? Millie is somebody who studies military history, and I think he respected the strategy that was at work and the way that Biden did it. And Millie remembered the Obama administration. He was um, a young guy working in the basement of the Pentagon, or younger guy working in the basement of the Pentagon. He saw the way in which the Pentagon brass was trying to jam Obama on Afghanistan, and he didn't like it then. And then coming out of Lafayette Square and all the talk about a coup and the like with the Trump administration, he was determined to demonstrate uh, that civilian rule was alive and well. So he was never going to he was never going to undermine Biden in the decision making process on Afghanistan. But I think that the question that you're you're asking at, at core is why did things go so badly wrong? And 
there are a couple answers. One is that nobody predicted that things would go so badly wrong so quickly. People thought that it would go badly wrong, but that was off in the future. And I think that that is a somewhat exonerating excuse. But on the other hand, it just is common sense that you, you take the American military out of Afghanistan very quickly, this army and government that depended on the American army wasn't going to be very sturdy. And I think we just misjudged. The contrast here is the, the, uh, the military intelligence, the intelligence on Ukraine is sort of spectacularly good. Yes. And the intelligence in Afghanistan is spectacularly bad because what happened in Afghanistan was actually very predictable which is once we say we're leaving, you know, what regional tribal commander is going to fight the Taliban? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so they all just caved. And so the Taliban are in Kabul like before you know it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So what is, what is the difference between military intelligence in Afghanistan and the military intelligence that served us so well in Ukraine and made Biden's leadership so great in putting together this coalition. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a intelligence expert, but from what I gather with Russia, we were able to intercept the actual war plan. So it was we, we have Russia wired. Maybe there's a lot of sloppiness on the Russian end in terms of the way in which they share information with one another. But it's also, we fought a Cold War with Russia. Our intelligence infrastructure as it relates to, to Russia was, was really good. With Afghanistan, there was decades of happy talk um, that was kind of baked into military and intelligence assessments of what was happening in Afghanistan. To understand that the Afghan army was going to collapse wasn't the matter of just intercepting a document. It required piecing together analysis. And uh, a couple of things made that harder. One is, is as we were withdrawing, we had fewer eyes and ears on the ground in Afghanistan. Another problem was COVID, where our soldiers stopped going out into the field to have meetings with their Afghan counterparts. And so they would conduct meetings over Zoom. And everybody knows that a Zoom meeting is worse than a normal face-to-face -face meeting. And that's especially true when it comes to collecting good information about an army. It, a commander could tell you all sorts of nice things. But then when you're out there inspecting the situation on the ground, you see things for yourself that would be clarifying. Commander. I want to ask you about commander. Yes. That's, that's the, uh, the Biden family German shepherd. Yes. Who has bitten in the White House, right? Yep. Uh, ten, 10 people. Yes. And Al, hmm? do you view this as an impeachable offense? No, <laughs> I just don't know why Commander isn't enjoying, and I mean enjoying being on a farm. I don't mean you tell the kids we're sending Commander to a farm. Because the U.S. government doesn't <laughs> have an extradition treaty to the farm. So what is that? What is uh, having a, a German shepherd that bites All I can say is uh, Biden... He didn't didn't fire anybody over Afghanistan. He certainly isn't going to fire a commander for crimes against humanity. Okay, that gives you a very 
no idea what this book is like. <laughs> Thank you for taking us down that path. <laughs> this is a really because, selling interview, Al. <laughs> well, that that was a, a facile response. <laughs> uh, do you want you you want to go deeper on the commander issue? No, <laughs> no, I don't want to make you do that. Let's talk about some other stuff you want to talk about. Oh, you know what? So I want to talk about uh, uh, fake news because I think one of the first interviews you did was on World Without Mind, mm-hmm. your which was your first book, uh, my second book, second book. Okay, we we live in a world that is just. Um, without mind to quote your book of uh, this was about social media and yes. the plague uh, of big technology. Yeah. And then there's also Fox and yeah, but we, we now sort of, you know, when Kellyanne Conway said alternative facts, right. There's going to mm-hmm. be alternative facts. What she was saying is, well, there's fake news Therefore, we have to have these alternative facts because the facts you're getting are fake. Yeah. And therefore, we can't believe anything anymore. No yeah. one can believe anything. Uh, World Without Mind. Yes. To plug your book. Yes. Thank you. Available in paperback. Uh, but they should buy The Last Politician first. Absolutely. Okay. Especially right now. Right at the beginning there. Yeah. But but this it's a great companion for the campaign for Democrats who want to, you know, talk about all all the achievements which are amazing. But let's talk about the political world we live in in terms of information. Yeah. Uh, so I could tell you a story, which is that the first excerpt from my book published in the Atlantic was about Afghanistan, and then then some guy also got a hold of my book. Uh, from an independent bookstore and started to mine it for clickbait. And Fox News started to get very titillated by my book, which is, you know, it's 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 a, it's in a lot of ways an admiring portrait of what Biden has accomplished, even as it points out his flaws and some of his shortcomings. Which is a strength of the book. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, but But so this guy, Jesse Waters on Fox News, this wannabe... Tucker Carlson, with an impressive helmet of hair, uh, starts talking about just making stuff up about uh, what I've written in my book. He, he says in the story about Kabul, he starts talking about how Joe Biden wanted to build parking lots in Kabul in the middle of the evacuation and that his aides were laughing at him. And I was like, whoa, did I? He's attributing this to me and to my book. It's like, did I actually write anything like that? What the hell is he? And I went back and I started to reread. And I did write about a parking lot in Kabul. But what I what I reported was that Biden was pouring over a map of the city looking for a place that refugees could gather so that they could be escorted to the airport. It was nothing remotely like what he was describing. He was just making up this absurd story, attributing it to me and arguing that even like this libtard reporter, Frank Four, is, is, can't help but report that Biden's aides were laughing at his, men- his lack of mental acuity, which was complete and total crap. But that's the world where we live in, where um, stories can materialize you know, with the slimmest connection back to reality. That's pretty fucking slim. <laughs> uh, so slim that it doesn't <laughs> exist. 
Maybe you could sue him for $700 million. Um, I like my odds. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's hey. the challenge of this. You have, you're a journalist. <laughs> you have journalistic principles. You write a journalistic book mm -hmm. about the Biden administration. That's kind of our side. And then you have alternative facts. This is even happening with the age question, which I know is, is like a legitimate question. And obviously, a lot of people have uh, doubts about this. But Fox has constructed this Sleepy Joe narrative, which is just not that's that's really not tethered to the reality of Joe Biden. You can ask questions about how he's going to age over the course of the next six years and whether it makes sense for the Democrats to, to nominate him as a candidate against Trump, given all that's at stake in the election. But he's just not Sleepy Joe. I mean, if you the whole book documents the ways in which he's been an activist in the weeds, completely engaged, sometimes overly engaged president. And that's just who he is. Did you read Richard Ben Kramer's of course. Um, I mean, it's it's course. one of the greatest works of political journalism ever written and um, is this incredible portrait of Joe Biden that is the Rosetta Stone for understanding Joe Biden. And one of the great mysteries to me is that the political press corps treats Biden like a boring figure. But anybody who's ever read Richard Ben Kramer knows that Biden is- What it takes. Is that- that's Yeah, what it takes. Yeah. Yeah knows that Biden is fascinating and that that everything you need to know about Biden in some respects grows out of Richard Ben Kramer. People evolve as they age, but they don't become new people. That Joe Biden who's so status conscious, who has so many different insecurities, he's still he's still around and kicking. It's part of the reason why he keeps pushing forward. It's the reason that he keeps running for president, running for re-election, because he still has this thing that he wants to prove to the world. Yeah, he is the opposite of that guy, of that sleepy Joe. And they actually edit tape to make him look like sleep. They, they do, you know, nasty stuff, right? Yeah. Nasty, um, well, that's the world we live in. But you, you've uh, added a lot of value to the world we live in with all your journalism, but but um, uh, particularly this one, the last politician, which is uh, so. Uh, this is a first draft of history. Is that right? Or is it's it very much a first draft of history. I mean, I think one of you know. Once I asked, I'm sorry, I asked Bob Woodward only because I wanted him. You know how he says raw publican and, uh -huh. <laughs> and raw porter? So he did one of his books on, on the war in Iraq or in Afghanistan, one of his books. And uh, he gave an interview to my radio show, and I was like the last show he did. So I was just mad at him. And then if you were interested in his book at all, you'd heard an interview with him. So I just wanted to say, like, now, do you are you more a, a historian? Is this the first draft of history? Are you more a historian or a reporter? So that he would just say, raw porter. <laughs> and I told my audience before, I knew he wouldn't be listening before he came on. So I just said, I'm going to make him say raw publican and raw porter as much as possible. 
But this is a, a first draft of history <laughs> that you've written, right? I would say I'm more of a reporter. <laughs> well, uh, you're a great one. And um, uh, the book is The Last Politician. The author, Frank Four, has been speaking with us for the last uh, 45, 50 minutes. And I recommend this uh, book very highly uh, to my listeners. It's so nice of you to say, Al. Well, uh, as insincere as that sounded, <laughs> that part. <laughs> it, it, hey, I, I thought it sounded sincere. Maybe my reportorial skills are not <laughs> what they should be. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.